Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by Shaheen Khan and Henry Newman. How are you doing, guys? Excellent. What hotel room are you in, Henry, today? Uh, I'm actually in an embassy suite that's not a Marriott. You're in an embassy suite that's not a Marriott? What the It happens. Boy, that's rare, Henry. I know a, a guy that values his hotel room points. Did somebody tell you it's a Marriott and then you got there and it wasn't? No, the company's holding a meeting in Embassy Suites. I had no choices. Uh-huh. Okay. Ah, okay. So your commute is good. Well, that's... I'm a company guy. Yeah, you are a team player, Henry. Everybody knows that about you. Everybody says that about you. But oh, well. All the way back to Florida. <laughs> that's right. Back to your roots in the bayou. <laughs> bayou. Um, meanwhile, speaking of the bayou, we've got a guest today who's going to be talking about the... Well, I guess the swamp that the internet has become. That's right. So our guest is Dave Marr, who is CTO of a company called Intertrust and president of several other affiliated companies. Really a deep, deep guy into cybersecurity, identity, authenticity, provenance, a topic that we've discussed in this. Let's let him tell us. Well, I want to tell you how this came about. So he wrote an article about deepfake and how to deal with that using blockchain technology. And that article is what triggered a set of conversations that led to this exchange today. So we'd love to welcome him. Well, we want to welcome Dave Marr, who is CTO of Intertrust, a cybersecurity company. Dave, thanks for your time and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, you're quite welcome. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Wonderful. Maybe before we get started, you can tell us a little about Intertrust. Sure. Intertrust, as you say, is a cybersecurity or an internet security company. I'm the uh, chief technology officer there. I'm also president of CCERT, which is a subsidiary, and that's a certificate authority that provides authenticated personas, uh, identities, and attributes for billions of devices that are connected to the internet. And also president of Whitecryption Corporation, which is a private provider of technology that provides means for software self-defense, that is, means for repelling attacks against application programming and data. And uh, before that, I was the head of the Secure Systems Research Department at Bell Labs, designing secure communications and commerce systems. And today, Intertrust is less of a digital rights management corporation for content, which is our sort of heritage in the commercial space beyond research and more of a what we call a data rights management company for governing all kinds of data, personal data, corporate data, government data, et cetera, what have you. I guess my first question would be, so do we really need security on the internet? <laughs> yeah. So that's actually a, a very good question because we haven't had it for the past, you know, 20 years. And so why start now? Uh, <laughs> good point. Yeah. So, but, you know, we are in a, what I would call the next stage of evolution of the web. In the 90s and the 2000s, we developed web protocols that allowed people to easily publish information using uh, HTTP URLs and 
HTML with links and people to easily find information using various search engines, including Alta Vista in the old days and Google, etc. But the way that the internet is being used or is starting to be used is connecting all kinds of devices. The computation model for the web is very different. It's much more distributed. And people are using the internet, like I say, for lots of different kinds of things that we didn't imagine when it was first designed. And so instead of just having a way of publishing information, we believe that we need a way of verifiably authentic and authoritative information can be published and a way in which people can find and verify the authority and authenticity of the information as well. So it's it's the same thing except for done over again where you have the properties of authenticity and provenance and authority for information and on both the publishing side and the consuming side. And we don't have that right now and, and that's what we believe that we're going to need. So Dave, this is Henry. I'm curious uh, where you think the world's going with certificates. I mean, a lot of the certificates are signed with SHA-256. Do you think there's a need to quickly move to 512 given all this talk about quantum? Yeah, so I, I don't know about moving to it, and I, I don't think it would be that big of a hit to move from 256 to 512. Hash functions are quantum safe in the sense that you only need to double the bit size in order to get the equivalent uh, resistance to attack for hash functions. But in the case of signatures, digital signatures, which the certificate infrastructure is based on, none of the current prevalent digital signatures uh, systems are quantum safe at all. And one of the ways in which we can kind of prepare for that is by using things like blockchains, which don't require long-term assurance of the keys, but only require that somehow or another, the person who submits something to a blockchain identifies themselves, and they could identify themselves with a short-lived certificate. So there are a number of ways of dealing with this problem. And the problem for hash functions isn't just as fear is the problem for the public key technology. Do we need another internet or is the existing internet fixable? Well, I believe that the existing internet is fixable. Uh, obviously, there, if you had it to do all over again, there are lots of things that we would change. But the internet protocols themselves are pretty robust and they work well. We've been able to introduce IPv6, which gives us many, many more addresses, as you all know. It took us 25 years to do it, but, you know. Yeah, but it's not, how many people are really using it? Well, a lot of devices do use it pretty much most of the PC world, for example. The mobile world is prepared for it. Now, how many actually use it? When they're forced to, let's put it this way, the infrastructure is pretty much there for it. And, for example, for a lot of the IoT applications, which it was kind of envisioned for, I think that that's... I wouldn't say it was envisioned for, but it's the kind of application that even in hindsight it is made for. I think those are coming online relatively smoothly. The internet has pretty much put the music, uh, the recording industry out of business, and it's working pretty hard on putting uh, TV and, and movies as well. What can be done about that? Well, it's interesting you use the word recording because that's what how we interacted with music and video in the past. But most of us aren't dealing with records anymore. Uh, we're mostly dealing with either things that are short-term cache, 
kind of like podcasts or streams, which was, you know, what podcasts as well as the way that most people are listening to music nowadays. And now even people have sort of cut the cord, as they say, and started to use a lot of content services, you know, from Netflix to the new Apple service to Amazon, etc. All of those things are streaming now. And so the security requirements for those kinds of things are very different than the security requirements for you know saving things on CD-ROMs or or on hard drives or something like that. Yeah. DVDs. Yeah. So we talked about the provenance of data, and that's a topic that Henry has yes. brought up a few times in this podcast. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there was an article that you wrote about using blockchain to ascertain the authenticity of something. You want to tell us a little bit more about how you would go about doing that and what you see as the state of the art there? I think there's a very significant problem out there that's referred to as deep fakes. And we have a situation now where just about any image or sound we can imagine can be synthesized using computers. And we need to be able to show that an image originated from a particular sensor, let's say a digital camera, as opposed to from some sort of synthesis program. Yeah. So uh, it's something that I think is at first a fairly simple thing. You say, okay, well, uh, you produce an image using a camera and then you digitally sign it. But as we were starting to get into a little bit earlier, if you digitally sign something and you lose the key or it's broken by some, eventually by some quantum crypto algorithm or probably more likely in the short term, some sort of a social attack on, on your key management system, that signature is totally worthless. And in fact, you know, that key can be used to forge just about anything. Now, the reason why, that way we like blockchains is because it has something uh, use of a blockchain to be able to, in effect, timestamp and authenticate the content of a file or a, or a document is that it has a, a um, property that we can call perfect forward integrity. Let's say I submit a document to a blockchain, of, let's say a photograph. What happens then is that my submission and the credentials that I use will be authenticated. It'll note who I am, and perhaps the credentials of the device that I use to take the photograph would also be vetted. As long as the keys associated with proving those credentials are not attacked at that point in time, then once I get the photograph's hash put into the blockchain, then I've got a pretty good and very secure timestamp and authenticator for the photograph. If the keys involved in proving the submission was authentic were subsequently attacked, doesn't make any difference, which is profoundly different than the situation if you were just signing the, the photograph itself. So that's one of the reasons why we think blockchain technology is the right kind of technology to be able to deal with this kind of situation. One of the problems, however, is that blockchain technology is extremely inefficient for recording those, or at least the, the blockchain technologies that most people are familiar with, like Bitcoin. Making a recording, for example, of a specific or doing a transaction that includes this kind of submission as part of a Bitcoin transaction is extremely expensive. So you need to develop 
different kinds of blockchain technologies in order to be able to accomplish the kind of thing we want to accomplish, which is authenticate the actual data and perhaps its GPS and, and time base and things like that. Who, who's doing that of work? Well, I don't know of anybody who is providing it as a product right now, because I think the need for dealing with it is pretty recent. You know, I don't recall seeing any kind of significant ruckus, if you will, about deep fakes, you know, two or three years ago. Yeah. So it's it's a new kind of thing. And I don't even know what the real demand for it is today. I can tell you that uh, a lot of people are want to assure the provenance of data, of other kinds of data that might be used in businesses. The kinds of things that you do need to do is people who are training uh, artificial intelligence algorithms, right. they train them using data that wants to be authentic. So being able to show the provenance of data is important in that case. Insurance companies that transfer risk, especially at the business-to-business level, they, of course, base their risk calculations on data, and they want to know what the authenticity of that kind of data is. And they also collect a lot of data, and it'd be nice to have systems that collect only the right kind of data, when I say right, the kind of data that they really needed for the risks as opposed to any kind of extraneous, let's say, personal data. Uh So there are all kinds of reasons that why data wants to be uh, authentic. And there are all kinds of reasons, you know, from the point of view of this new thing that we call the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, where commands to your home appliances, including your air conditioning system and your water heater and everything else that's going to be connected, or in some cases already is, you want those commands to be authentic as well. Now, part of this is identity, and there's already a bunch of decentralized identity projects that are out there. I think what you're suggesting is the blending of identity with content, such that the content is permanently linked with a particular identity at a particular timestamp. Is that is that correct? Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, exactly. So really, in that sense, we can then, really all we can hope for is authenticity and the provenance. We cannot, so that part we can potentially trust, but the actual truth of the content is still in question, right? I mean, if I create a fake image and sign it and timestamp it, then you know that that fake image was by me. But the image is still fake. Absolutely. Right? And, and so for these kinds of the kind of system that you really need, you need more than technology, but the technology related to what you can call trust management. So the market, for example, for authenticating photographs that, let's say, people that might influence some people's uh, behavior or judgment, let's say. We might want to be able to authenticate any photographs that come from professional photographers' cameras. So we can embed, for example, an authenticating capability inside the camera. Well, we could have blockchains that I call titles, which are distributed ledgers that can associate, let's call them professional photographers with credentials from, let's say, the news organizations. Mm -hmm. So the news organizations will vouch for their photographers. The photographer will vouch for the connection that they have with the device. And then when the device takes a photograph, then we can use those two authenticators. And then when the photograph is post-processed, perhaps even in the camera, but through some other kind of mechanism, let's say 
typically nowadays, you'll use some sort of cloud service with fantastic tools for modifying photographs. You could, again, in theory, authenticate the operation that was performed on the photograph. Mm -hmm. And you can complete that, what I would call a chain of handling and control until it's finally published. And then you can get the all of the authentication chain can be traced back to the original sensor. Sounds like we need to move to a 5G world pretty quickly to get enough bandwidth to do all this. Well, and that's a whole lot of metadata that has to ride along with everything too. Well, you're, you're right. And that's part of the, the research that we were doing. So we actually figured out a way of doing video, allowing people who are submitting things to, let's say, YouTube or what, whatever, to uh, include the metadata that includes the authenticators that we're talking about on a segment-by-segment segment basis where the, each segment might be two or three seconds. And it turns out that it would expand the amount of uh, storage for videos by only a few percent. In fact, it probably could end up being less than 1%, but we're not quite sure of that yet. So the amount of storage necessary would not be that big if you use some of the technologies that we're talking about. And hash functions, as it turns out, and one of the reasons why blockchains are kind of neat to use here is that hash functions can provide a natural index to be able to locate the authenticator extremely quickly, much, much faster than verifying digital signatures. And so that's why, again, we use that kind of technology, because we can actually in real time authenticate an entire video and probably millions of those videos simultaneously using relatively little computational as well as storage bandwidth. Now, Dave, part of the promise of blockchain and cryptocurrencies is this whole decentralized trust. How do we do that in this case when you are trying to ascertain authenticity and in fact even the validity of a particular piece of content but you also want to do it in a way that is decoupled from a trusted authority right so that's a question that i wrestle with a lot because if you take a look at bitcoin i think it's a fabulous technology however not all that convinced that the kind of mechanism that it uses which is called proof of work is necessary for most for, for hardly any of the blockchain applications that that i've been looking at what you Want is, if you think about distributed computing, is you want to be able to authenticate a submission to a blockchain that, that it came from the kind of authority that has reputation and things of that sort. So that's one policy that you apply. And then when you put something in the, into the blockchain, you want to have a different policy for assuring that it was all done right and you had multiple witnesses. Now, the question then is, how many witnesses do you really need for an event like a news photographer took a photograph, photographs hash gets put into the blockchain? Do you need five witnesses or do you need, uh, in the case of Bitcoin, they use 20,000 arbitrary witnesses? And I can't answer that question easily, but my hunch is, is that we could probably round up a number of different mutually disinterested or sort of complementary interested parties to witness the submission of something like a digital photograph's hash into a blockchain and be assured that it's much better than the system that we have right now and probably pretty safe. Right. I think that's a great point that we want something that's better than now rather than something that is 
true and valid in the general case. Yeah, and, and it may turn out to be, I mean, we're not trying to do the same kinds of things here that were that Bitcoin, Bitcoin's trying to solve the double spending problem, which is a very, very tough problem to solve, uh, even with blockchain technology. We're just trying to say that, you know, a bunch of people witnessed an event, and once they've endorsed that that event really happened, it can't be undone. That witnessing can't be undone. So, so I think that's a different problem, and it's probably going to require different policies. Is there a concern when we start talking about what is true and what is not about the subjectivity that's involved in that? The subjectivity is going to depend on what you really are trusting, what you need to trust. And that gets more into the bigger aspects of the system of taking a lot of different kinds of data that right now isn't authenticated and you don't really know where it came from and who the authority is that's vouching for it, et cetera. And taking that situation and creating a new situation where at least some data has that authority and authenticity. And how do you create a system like that? And we're looking at ways in which we can create a market-based system where you wouldn't have, for example, a, a single blockchain. If you wanted to have, let's say, somebody who vouched for professional photographers' photographs, you could have one blockchain for that. If you want to have somebody who vouches for your academic credentials, that's a different blockchain because it'll interact with different kinds of clients who are publishing to it, namely universities and that sort of thing, and you've got public records, et cetera. You can imagine probably tens of thousands of independent blockchains or distributed ledgers that specialize in specific kinds of information, and then you can have them refer to one another when you need to be able to do that. And so the subjectivity is going to get down to choosing a, a blockchain for your application that you are really happy with. And you may have to pay for it, but it provides value. Right. So the subjectivity is going to reduce to a commercial proposition of somebody is saying, I can give you authentic, authoritative information. You pay me a little bit for it. And I have the choice of many different uh, versions of that. I was just thinking about the incentives. I mean, part of the other thing about blockchain is that it requires participation. Yes. And, and incentives. And in, so therefore, possibly incentives. Now, if everybody's got money in Bitcoin, maybe you're all incented to participate. But in this case, if I'm a witness, do you feel that that needs to be baked into the design of these systems, perhaps? Well, I think, again, to get back into the subjectivity, let's say I'm going to operate a blockchain for a certain kind of information. And what I do is I go out and I hire some witnesses from different backgrounds. Or I get, for example, let's say a, a bank, an insurance company, a, let's say a government agency, a professional agency like the IEEE or whatever, all of whom are in the business of actually offering this kind of service mm -hmm. and combine them basically into, you know, each one of those is a different witness. So we haven't actually done that, but I think that that's the kind of thing that you can use for a policy for vetting the submissions into the blockchain. I don't know, maybe it's because of my criminal nature, but I always think about how something like that can be scammed if 
you talk about hiring people, for instance? Well, again, I think there are a lot of companies that are in the trust business, like banks and et cetera. And in this case, they are And certificate authorities is a good example. We get at the company that I'm president of, CCERT, we get audited every year by an independent professional CPA company that specializes in web audits. So I think these kinds of things can occur. And then you also realize that Again, if these people are in the business of doing these kinds of things properly and you can at least evaluate their conflicts of interest, it seems as if you have a shot, and this might seem kind of counterintuitive, but if you consider even Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these others where they provide a certain kind of incentive to totally anonymous people who really aren't going to be in the position of authenticating let's say, the authority of a source of piece of information because they know nothing about it, you still have a situation where they can be subverted, even though it seems improbable, simply because people are saying, well, uh, it would require uh, 50% of the resources, in this case, the hashing resources, which reduces the energy, to be able to subvert the system. But I can think of at least one or two areas where a small number of entities can command over 90% of the resources of the world, in fact. And if you think about financial resources, which is pretty close to controlling energy. So this leads to probability then, because at some point when you go decentralized, it's not going to be 100%. So should there be a gradation to truth and trust? Should it be that this is known to be true, this is known to be false, and here's stuff in the gray area that we assign some probability to? Do you see that as a direction? I'm more partial to market-based. So what I think you want is transparency. Hmm. So you have, let's say, a, a blockchain operator describe how their system works, publish their software so that you take a look at it, have the credentials of the, the witnesses and the policies associated with how each submission is authenticated from the source and how it's the process of submission and processing is accomplished before something actually ends up in the blockchain. And you publish all of that, and then you determine, uh, you let the consumer, so to speak, whoever it is, typically a business, decide whether or not that's all sufficient. You know, you make that kind of decision. I just had a decision to about purchasing earthquake insurance, and the kind of thing I asked about were well, what's the reputation of the insurance company and how does it, did it play out, pay out its claims in the past? And from the point of view of catastrophic insurance, who are their reinsurance companies, et cetera? I think people can make these kinds of risk decisions in, in a similar fashion if there's competition. Well, that's the thing. You've got to have competition in there. This is just an incredibly deep topic. We could go on for another hour or two, but clock on the wall says we've got to get hopping. So we really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you, Dave. This is great. Oh, thank you, guys. It's uh, always great to talk about this stuff, and the questions were wonderful. And we will check back in again, too. Yeah, exactly. We'd love to have you back. Great. All right. Excellent. (laughs) 
So that was really interesting, wasn't it, guys? Yes, it was. I just think this is such a grand challenge of our time that it's a topic that we got to really pay attention to. And I'd love to check back with him in a few months and see what the state of the art is. Yeah. I, I get a little hinky when we're talking about one version of truth and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you mean there are multiple versions of truth? Well, yeah. Everybody's got a different perspective on things. and I, I don't know. It just gives me a little stomach rumble to think about well, that. Well, I think that, I mean, this is truth about truth, but it is true that there's a context and then there's content. Yes. You can... And I think it's, you know, a little odd that we're doing it on election day. Yeah, you're right, Henry. That's the thing. How is all of this going to work? And I'm wondering how you're going to pay for it. Yep. But we have to pay for it no matter what. Dude. This is true. The alternative is worse. That's true. That's true. And on that ominous note, let's go ahead and call that an episode of Radio Free HPC. And we will see you back here soon, promptly, with more content and more great stuff. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Great. Boom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening.